Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in story. Lab talk with Laura. Okay, welcome to the 32nd episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Today I am joined in the studio by Mimi Elkatan and Marsha Allen. Uh, Mimi is a PhD candidate in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Originally from Western Mass, they studied environmental and water resource engineering at Hampshire College and then served in the Peace Corps before starting graduate school. Um, Mimi studies water quality in intermittent pipe drinking water in low and middle income countries. Marsha Allen is a PhD student in the Geoscience Department, originally from Trinidad and Tobago. Um, she has a master's degree from, um, in Earth and Environmental Science from Brooklyn College, New York, and she studies groundwater and fractured bedrock aquifers, specifically in Trinidad and Tobago. And um, joining as my co-host today Ooh. is local comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney. All right. Um, also, local tennis pro. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget that, yeah. Yeah, important to know. <laughs> okay, yeah, so we have a water-themed episode today. I'm excited. Yeah, yes. Okay, so let's, uh, let's start with Marsha. Tell us about what you research. Um, okay, so my research project is based um, in my home country, particularly the smaller island, Tobago. And Tobago is a very special island because it has a very complex geology. Um, most of the water is stored in uh, highly fractured, large grain crystalline ro rocks. So think about your granite countertops, but a very large piece of it with huge fractures okay. and storing all of the water for the island. Um, my advisor worked on a project in, with the Trinidad government like five years ago uh, because of uh, the Pan-Caribbean drought, which lasted between 2013 to 2016. And he ba basically did an assessment of the island to locate new well locations. And the results of that project is basically what I based my dissertation research on. The southwest of the island has produced some of the subcatchments are producing maybe more than 500 times the calculated recharge for those catchments. Okay. So I believe that water is being transported through those fractures from the north of the island to the south of the island. And I'm trying to use geochemistry, um, some stable isotopes, to, and monitor um, the changes in the solutes from the, the weathered rocks, which are called saprolites. And these changes basically will infer flow paths underground. And then I'm gonna use environmental tracers and age date the water so I expect to see in the northern region of the island younger waters that are less than 50 to 60 years old. And I'm hoping in the south of the island there will be a portion of young water, but then there will be another portion that's unaccounted for. So it will give me um, proof that there are older waters in the south, meaning that they traveled far distances. Then finally, <laughs> I'm going to use um, climate projections to the year 2100 and create a groundwater model, a 3D groundwater model, to calculate uh, the change in storage over time if 
the Caribbean continues to go through these drying patterns, which means more severe droughts. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So zooming, so you brought up this drought in the Caribbean. Can you talk about that? Like what happened and what, so what's the, you know, the concern about water going forward? Well, it's already different. You know, most of the world, like 80% of the world, the aquifers are like in um, uh, sand layers, you know, um, okay. pebbles, the storage is in these uh, layers that you can actually calculate how much water is being held and yeah. how much you can pump and so forth. But in fracture, hard rocks, it's very difficult. You basically have to make your assessments through like pumping the wells that are already that already exist and compared to recharge. So there's so the so the island is oh, special yes, so because it's so it's it's these fractured rocks. It's harder to tell yeah. how much water is there compared yeah. to like other more traditional types of yes. aquifers. Is that right? Yes. And so let's zoom out first. What's an aquifer <laughs> for our, for our non hydrologists in the no, audience? No, aquifer basically <laughs> is um is underground storage for water for okay. water. So this is where we get all of the water that we drink. Yeah. Basically. Some some places in the world. For example, South Africa, they had a situation last year. They predominantly um, were relying on surface reservoirs for a long time. Okay. And then when that, I believe when it started to dry up, they had water concerns. They went on like, they had to ration water. And I actually met a student from South Africa last month at the International um, Association of Hydrogeologists. And he told me that when that happened, they called in hydrogeologists because we study both rocks and water underground. Mm. And now they're in a better place because they're basically using groundwater. So okay. they avoided okay. more water issues by tapping into what was underground. Okay, yeah. so people, so there's basically like three kinds of sources that I'm hearing about for water. There's like surface, yeah. so that's like a lake. A lake, yeah. Or a reservoir. reservoir. And then you've got aquifers and then there's two kinds basically. Yes. Is that right? Yes. Okay. So 80% uh, from, um, you know, aquifers that basically can be sand or pebbles, and okay. then the other 20% is water stored in these fractures. Okay, and so this is a more complicated kind of aquifer, the yeah. most complicated. Yeah, and it's really tough in the Caribbean because we have two seasons, basically. Mm -hmm. A dry season for six months and a, a wet season for six months. And all of the water used throughout the entire year comes from that recharge from the wet season. Okay. So managing um, that water in the storage is really central. And Tobago especially, um, a lot of its income is from uh, tourism. Mm -hmm. So the more population grows and the more hotels they build industries, the industries that grow there, they would need more water in the future. Mm. So coming up with... Um, uh, a mechanism to calculate storage based on inputs like precipitation and evapotranspiration and runoff is a really important, important and effective method um, of management, especially in these small islands. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's <laughs> really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't know what to say. That's so amazing. Wow. You're smart as hell. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying. And working on a really important problem. Yeah. So, yeah, so the, you know, there's this concern moving forward about water security. And then there's this whole second question about how is climate change going to affect, affect that, it? Yep. Right. So, this is why I think it's very important to do like 
projections based on let's say the extremes like let's say you get a lot more storms you get more rain during the rainy season what is that going to do to an aquifer like this and droughts you know how much how much of the water is going to disappear how much can you safely pump on a monthly basis or mm-hmm. yearly basis so is there literal storage though on a stone and a sand like the mm-hmm. is that where they're going to get the water from or it's from so it's in the, it's in the cracks because the, the majority of the island is basically igneous metamorphic rocks. We have a few carbonates to the south, but it's literally just being stored in those mm. fractures. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how large they are. We don't know how deep they go, but the fact that you're seeing a whole bunch of water in the southwest, it must be coming from somewhere. Okay. So it's either it's traveling through those fr- fractures to the southwest, or maybe there's a deep underground source mm-hmm. that it's tapping into. We will find out in a year. So you're trying, <laughs> you're trying to tell apart the different water. You're trying to tell like water that Old came from water. rain, yeah. water that came from this rock, or water that came from that rock. So, so no, this is like young water and old water. Okay. So young water is considered, you know, <coughs> water that um, recycles through the system faster. So it's like precipitation. You okay. can tell based on the isotopes. Um. And then through age dating, you could actually validate if it's young water less than 50 years old or if it's older water, which you have to use different methods okay. to test for older water. So um, me testing for young water, if it's not completely young water and there's still a percentage of water unaccounted for, I automatically know it has to be water older than 60 years old. Oh, okay. yeah. I've never thought to ask my water how old it was. <laughs> I'm attracted to older water. <laughs> That's so funny. It just didn't, it, like, you know, just as a layman, when it comes to water. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really I, I would have thought technique. all water is the same age, you know? It's an interesting concept. Yeah, because, you know, throughout time, we have different rock deposits that's different ages, and if water gets trapped in there, it, it has an older age. Yeah. And it's not like... If it's not um, mixing with the surface or the, high, mm-hmm. the rocks at, at higher elevations, you know, it, it might just stay there for a long time and has a very long age. So okay. it's so cool. Science could actually test that now. Does that affect like the taste of the water? Or <laughs> I have never really um, <laughs> tasted old water. <laughs> you don't taste your samples. That's not part I of the scientific process. <laughs> I drink Tobago's water, but I can't differentiate. Between young and old water yet. <laughs> you go, oh, this is a nice aged water. <laughs> <laughs> it's like wine. <laughs> you write it in your methods. Tasted. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like I should disclose that I went to Tobago with you. <laughs> oh, nice. um, I tagged along when you were doing some of your work, yeah. so um, I didn't. I didn't help at all. So <laughs> I just went and enjoyed the beautiful beaches. <laughs> um, yeah. But so you went to Tobago to collect mm-hmm. samples. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So <clears throat> I went to Tobago this past uh, January, and that trip was specifically to test, to sample 10 wells um, on the east coast of the island from the north to the south. Uh, And I'm doing age dating on those wells I tested. I can't age date all of the wells because there's over 50 wells. Okay. And each sample takes like $350. Okay. And I want to do three different types of, you know, um, tracer analysis. So that could be very expensive. So I literally chose like um, 
a few wells in specific places. Uh, it's so interesting. I hadn't, to the north of, my grandfather's actually to the north of the island from Speyside. And I hadn't been there since I was like 12. And I didn't remember what the drive was like. So when I got to Tobago, the um, water technicians from the water company warned me. And they were like, this is going to be a very, very rough ride. Um, it's very hilly and um, <laughs> a lot of cliffs. <laughs> I didn't take it seriously. <laughs> oh, I was like, fine, I've been to Tobago, it's fine. That was the most intense ride ever. It was like being in a, a roller coaster, but it was a car. Mm. And then you have these cliffs next to you. <laughs> I li they had to stop a couple times for me. It was rough. <laughs> But I did it. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. And I successfully um, collected some samples. I may have to do one more fieldwork uh, uh, collection because I may need more CFC samples. What's that mean? CFC samples? Chlorophorophobic carbon. So okay. CFCs, I think we've heard about it um, with reference to the ozone layer years ago. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it's a... Uh, so it's... A, it's contributed through anthropogenic um, sources, human activity. Okay. And it was created um, to be used in like refrigerators and air conditioners. And because we were using it, it, uh, it was basically de deposited in the atmosphere. And so I think maybe in the 50s, we could have seen changes with reference to inputs of CFCs in the okay. atmosphere. And at certain temperatures, the, it dissolves in precipitation. And once it dissolves in precipitation, it's also be, going to be deposited in these aquifers. And um, since we know uh, when, it's, when we started to input CFCs in the atmosphere, we can calculate how old water is based on the amount of CFCs that's in there. Wow. So that's one of the methods I'm using to get an age of the water less than 50 years Oh, old. okay, so yeah. that's what you were saying earlier. Like, yeah. it, there's this certain method, you date the water, and then yeah. if it, so if it has, if it's maxed out on the amount of CFCs, that means it could be older than 50 years, but you don't know how much. Mm -hmm. And then you have to switch. Yeah, so give, it, I think it'll give you a percentage of how much of the water is, like, less than 50 years old. Okay. And if there's a uh, point, a uh, part of it unaccounted for, it's older. Huh. Yeah. That's wild. I'm excited. This is the first time I'm doing it, so I'm excited to see nice. how it turns out. <laughs> I'm going home and test my water. <laughs> it's going to be $350 per sample. <laughs> my water acts young, though. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just so interesting to me because, yeah, hearing about CFCs was always like a thing you think about if the ozone layer and whatever. So it's like when you start to think about how all of the things that we put in the atmosphere, does, is everything we put in the atmosphere going to end up in our water? Is that like the lesson there? That's a good question. <laughs> it's possible, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very, very possible. Nice. Mm, great. <laughs> <laughs> That's good news, all right. <laughs> Wait, I will, I, I'm not even sure like what's going to happen in the future with, with reference to water quality, but I'm sure Mimi will give us more information <laughs> about that. Yeah. I think it's so cool that you're studying Trinidad and Tobago, and you're from Trinidad and Tobago. Like, how do you think that's contributed to your research? You know, 
I always told myself, I always want to do a PhD, but for my, all my friends who have PhDs, they always tell me, do something you're passionate about because it'll be fun and interesting. And they were right. But also, it's very close to my heart because mm. um, seeing the effects or hearing the effects of my friends from Tobago and Trinidad during the dry season uh, is really heartbreaking and I'm, I'm very concerned. So what better way to give back to your community and your people than to figure out a big problem? So this is my gift to home, my PhD dissertation. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And for someone else who studies water like myself, like I can tell your research is like very significant. Thank you. It's like very cool, like the flow of, of water drinking water what? through aquifers. Wow. Like yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So you studied um something very different for your masters. Do you want to talk about that? I couldn't I could talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's beautiful because I always say where you get an opportunity take it, especially mm -hmm. in, the, in the world of academia. And um, so I did my associate, an associate degree in New York, and I got a scholarship to Mount Holyoke Women's College here in the Valley. And I originally wanted to become an economics major, but then I f fell in love with rocks in my <laughs> science <laughs> class. And I switched my major to geology, then minor in economics. And um, is it a specific rock? Like, do you still have the rock that you fell in love no, with? No, I'm sure they still have it in the lab. I think it was a diamond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have diamonds at Mount Holyoke. You sure it's still in the lab? <laughs> <laughs> and I remember um, being confused, and, I, and the lab t uh, teacher told me, I was like, what can I do with a degree in geology? And she looked at me, and she's like, Google it. You're from Trinidad. You have oil and natural gas. Oh. And I switched. Um, <laughs> and I really wanted to do a senior thesis because I knew if it, I did have to get into grad school, I should have a research component. So for my bachelor's, I actually um, studied uh, calcium, aluminum, inclusion. Um, these were the first rocks to form in our solar system. Mm. So they're over 4 billion years old. Um, and you prove this through the mineralogy, and the, it's because some minerals uh, form under extremely high pressure and temperature, so very close to the sun. And so I did a, a thesis at Mount Holyoke. Uh, it actually, you know, got published in wow. for NASA the Lunar Planetary Science oh. Conference. Oh. And then uh, my advisor, uh, Dr. Harold Connolly, he also gave me another project for my ma for my masters at Brooklyn College. So I got three pieces of the Chalabinsk meteorite that crashed into Russia a few years ago, hmm. and I use it petrology, mineralogy to figure out the different um, impact events that occurred while it traveled through space. And uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, <laughs> it was a really intense project but I did it and I'm very very excited wow. to, to say I had child abuse meteorites wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't mine it's the Museum of Natural History New York's meteorites okay. but they were very I was very fortunate for them to let me do a project on mm. it wow so, so you worked at the Museum of Natural History I did all of my analyses wow. on the electron microprobe over there and um so you switch, you really switch. I you made a big went, you swing. You went from outer space to underground. <laughs> to underground. Uh, yeah, me, you know, it's, I just I just love space and I love water, so. 
why not put them together at some point? <laughs> <laughs> or study and study them separately. It worked out. <laughs> Let's talk about the climate change component. I know this is like in the future plans, but what what are some of the things that you expect? How do you expect climate change to impact the island? It doesn't have to be your work, but just like what's, you know, what are the thoughts about what's going to happen? And then how does your research tie into that? Well, hmm. I know for sure that uh, this is uh, my fear is that because of the latitudinal location of Trinidad and Tobago, it's pretty close to the equator. Uh, most of the storms come off of Africa at that latitude, sort of, and comes across the Atlantic. And they always look as if they're going to come straight to Trinidad and Tobago. And most of the time, they, they, they swing north, and we don't get, you know, the repercussions of a hurricane or a storm, but sometimes we get a lot of rain and stuff. Um, that's why there's a, a, a saying that God is a trini, <laughs> because hurricanes don't hit us. But um, my concern is that those patterns change, and or we get more intense storms. For the past six years, there has been really intense flooding in Trinidad during these just rainstorms. So I don't know what a hurricane would do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also concerned about just water resources because um, I remember friends saying I couldn't send my kids to school because there was no water. And, and if this is the begin beginning of it, you know, I feel as if we need to figure out how to cope before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous about the type of storms we're going to get or how many in the future. And if it continues drying, um, I think we may have to invest in more desalination plants and mm -hmm. so forth. But the only way we could do this is to know what we have and how much we can use. So two impacts, more storms, more intense storms, more flooding, less water. It basically shut. If you don't have water, it shuts everything down. So more storms sounds like more water. So what's the? Why is it more storms and then still less water? Because remember, these storms um, come only six months in the year, mm -hmm. and um, because because the, the storage capacity of those fractures are what it is. I feel as if we lose more water than other types of aquifers. Okay. So being able to manage and know how much we can get from the fractures now. We, it, we probably know, based, based on my climate projections and the 3D model, I'll know if those fractures can hold more water or okay. not. So that's, that's basically what I'm gonna answer in the last part of my research. So what happens in intense rain, like increased in re intense rain, and what happens with civic, more severe drying. Marsha, how do people uh, mainly get their water in Trinidad? Um, so the water resources is managed by uh, the government agency, WASA. And um, even now, uh, most people have to buy these, uh, these huge tanks because um, water f they, they basically manage water on a schedule. So certain days of the week you will have like running water from the water company. And for those days that you don't have like water in the lines, you have to have a storage component in your backyard so you can use that while you don't have water. So it's, I remember at my sister's house, we would have water in the lines from the company three days a week. Uh, other than that, she had like 
two tanks in the back and we would use that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you have to plan. So you have to plan. <laughs> I'm really glad I asked that question because that's exactly what I study. Really? Ooh. Yes. So okay, awesome. I'll talk about it more when it's my turn. Right. Okay. <laughs> so they don't store rainwater or anything like that? Well, some people do, but honestly, I, I feel as if, especially the farmers, they should start investing in some sort of contraption to collect water in the, in the rainy season. Yeah. So even when they don't have, you know, a... a Excess of a lot of water in the dry season, they can still tap into their rainwater. Hmm. You brought up desalination plants. Can you talk? What is that? It's basically um, a process where you take like saline water, seawater, and remove the soil component, make it into potable drinking water. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's another solution for where to get it. Is I heard it doesn't taste the same, but uh, what what can you do? You have to mm, drink it. Yeah. <laughs> that that really young water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We won that precipitation. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Marsha can tell you, but like desalination takes a lot of energy. It's mm. expensive. It's expensive. Yeah. Okay, so it's not an ideal solution. Mm. It's just a possible solution. Yeah, it's a backup plan. <laughs> oh, that's plan B. Yeah. Oh, okay. they work together, basically. Mm. Yeah. Okay, okay <laughs> let's uh, let's shift gears and turn to Mimi. Awesome. I'm so happy I got to listen to Marsha's research. Um, and I'm glad that it kind of relates to mine as well. I also study drinking water. I study drinking water in communities that received piped water um, from a utility. And in these situations, there's more demand than there is supply, meaning that people don't have access to all the water that they would be willing to use. Um, And so what the utility does in this situation is they have water delivered to different parts of the city on a schedule. And the schedule can vary depending on what the resources are. Um, But people can get water for three times a week or they might only get it for a few hours a week. And a lot of times in this situation, um, people store their water in big tanks so that they have water for when they're not being supplied. And so this usually happens in resource-limited communities in a lot of uh, low-income countries. It's very common. Middle-income countries, it's common. Or small communities, even right here in the U.S. Um, happens a lot in the global south. And so two things happen. Um, People don't get as much water as they want and that can affect what they do with the water. Um, And then also people having, so it's called intermittent water supply or IWS and (laughs) I see Kim writing (laughs) (laughs) at the end of the show. (laughs) Intermittent water supply and it affects the water quality. Because if you imagine if you have stagnant water that's not mm. always running all the time, it's not meant to be supplied that way. We, as engineers and as scientists, we did not design piped water to be supplied intermittently. We designed it to be supplied continuously. Um, and we all know that stagnation or disruptions to water systems, even here in the US, if you get a main break, you have issues with water, you get outbreaks things like that. Supply switching, we all know what happens in D.C. and Flint and Detroit and other places. And now this is happening regularly in communities all around the world of cities with millions of people. And so we've, it's been an um, area that's been overlooked for a while now. We've, we, meaning my, myself and my uh, advisor, Dr. Emily Kumpel, have decided to look directly at intermittent water supply and its relationship with water. Um, 
water quality. Okay. So we're looking at intermittent water supply and water quality, and we're doing that because we know that poor water quality affects people's health. Mm -hmm. So we think it's a really I important issue to start looking at. Yeah. Wow. Should I describe what I do? That was, I mean, that was a lot already to unpack, <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot. Right? So, like, are you, um, are you focused on intermittent water supply generally, or do you focus on a specific place? Great question. So, um, a lot of the studies that we have s focus on case studies around the world and different okay. cities and different systems, and no one's ever looked at intermittent water supply in general. What are the basic things uh. that we know? Because we, as in engineering, we have a list of assumptions and this is like pretty normal for us to assume a lot of things, but no one's ever, everybody always assumes continuous water. Oh. Now we're taking that assumption out and we're actually studying, okay, this is the context we need to study this water in. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Mimi Elkatan and Marsha Allen. We're talking about water. My co-host is comedian Kim DeShields. You can catch Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, iTunes, Twitter, SoundCloud, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Okay, jumping back into it. Um, I think engineering struggles a lot with context. Mm -hmm. oh. um, we assume a lot of stuff. Um, okay. So like when you're building a design or trying to generalize like what, yeah. how, how good is the water going to be? Mechanisms, you're assuming yeah. that it's, but that's not actually true. No, it's not. You're assuming it's just flowing all the time and that's in a lot of places not true. Yeah. That's so interesting. We're building systems that we would build in a high income country and a low income country. And it's not really fair or equitable for those people to be expected to manage their su their water supply when they don't have the resources to manage it how we've designed it. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, so we're trying to like piece together what factors are affected by the intermittency. Um, we know that, again, a lot of disruptions in water supply can cause deteriorations in water health, and we like now we want to know what does it mean when you have regular disruptions? Mm -hmm. What are the factors that really contribute to the reduced water quality? What, and that leads us, if we know what factors are really contributing and how easy they're able to change or what variation we have control over, mm -hmm. we can make recommendations to how to operate these systems mm -hmm. better. So that's what we're trying to take a look at. So yeah, I study it generally. Okay. Were you impacted emotionally by like Flint and places like that, that where people are suffering? Is that why you decided to? Um, so I, I've always wanted to study water, maybe for the last 10 years. Um, I think just growing up in a high-income country and then, realize, then suddenly one day finally realizing that water is a challenge around the world. Mm -hmm. I like just thought to myself, oh wow, what a, co not cool problem, but what an interesting thing to take a look at. And I was really impacted by Flint that came much years later after I decided that I wanted to study water, but it's just like, it just reinforces the fact that, you know, these things are gonna happen, even in places that we should have good water. Like there's no reason why the US should have, it's a high income country, should have communities that are struggling with their water. We have solutions. <laughs> we have resources, maybe not particular countries. Um, in my opinion, I think a lot of communities that struggle with their water in the U.S. or in high-income countries and, or in other places around the world, it's not an issue of engineering or uh, it's not a science issue. It's more of a how much do we care about these communities and getting them the resource that we need. It's mm. 
racism mm-hmm. yeah. and capitalism sure, and discrimination yeah. <laughs> and things like that. It's a health problem. Yeah. Um, so it's sad to see those situations just reinforces how important it is uh, it is to focus on water in general, not just as an engineer, but just as someone who is part of the human community and cares about humanity in general. <laughs> Sound a little idealist right now, but just <laughs> just in general, we all should be working towards like ensuring that people have the resources or at least the health to be able to participate um, in their life and each other's lives and things like that just reinforces to me. I'm not in engineering to be in engineering. I don't know how obvious that is to people. I'm into engineering because I think it's a tool to help give people the life that they want. And Mm -hmm. I think Marsha would agree too. Yeah. So I just saw it as like a really cool tool to help do what I'd like to do is like improve health and improve livelihoods and well-being things like that well awesome. that made me a little verklempt <laughs> <laughs> just emotional that was really wow was that word you just used <laughs> <laughs> from snl some it's like i think it's a jewish term oh Ooh. Or you're feeling some kind of way feeling <laughs> some kind of way i get that <laughs> so yeah so how what's the way that you actually study so you're saying you don't do case studies you don't go to specific places other people are working on that but you're working on general understanding so how do you do that Ooh, okay so i'm in the lab and so to be able to study intermittent water supply generally i have built in the lab uh two pipe loops so a pipe loop I'll describe the pipe loop. The pipe loop is made with PVC, a kind of plastic PVC pipe. It's two inches in diameter. It's a gray pipe. The pipe leak is 20 feet, and it loops back onto itself. And it's connected to a tank and a pump to keep the water flowing. So the water's flowing under pressure. Um, It's getting water from this tank, and it's got a hydraulic retention time, which is how long the water um, stays in the pipe, or HRT, for 12 hours. So the water kind of, um, so I have some water coming out of the system. I have a small a small flow rate coming out and a little bit of fresh water coming in. And so the purpose of these pipe loops, as I call them, is to simulate a water distribution system, a drinking water distribution system. And the water I have in there is the town of Amherst, just tap water. And so I have two of them. So I can use one as a control. One is continuous water. It's been running for the last, oh God, since May. It's been running continuously, okay. turning over its water every 12 hours slowly. And I have one that I operate just twice a week. Um, it's arbitrary what days I use, but some t- I do it like Tuesday and Friday. Um, and I'll turn them on for six hours, and then I'll shut them off after six hours. And this will happen twice a week to simulate intermittent water supply. Um, we chose that specific pattern because it emulates um, a system in India that has a lot of lot of people that we hope to maybe do field work later. So that's why we chose that pattern. But really, we could have chose various ones, and we might in the future do some variation. But the theory behind having these two things, so that's my setup. It's a pilot-sized water distribution system. That's my setup. And... Um, The theory is if you take one sample from one and then take a simultaneous sample from the other, you can measure the differences. Because in every other variable, they're exactly the same, Mm. Um, except for uh, the supply period. So that's really cool. And so you can take, you can collect a lot of data and say how these systems are different. A lot of stuff comes from time variations and things like that. Um, What the chlorine level just happens to be, we can make a lot of chlorine 
correlations. We can tell what is not affected. We found that DO isn't really affected, which is dissolved oxygen. pH isn't really affected. Um, some other components are really not affected, but can I share some results? Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's, that's, okay, yeah, here's the exciting thing that I found out. Um, a lot of people like to demonize intermittent water supply, and they suggest that we should just get rid of it altogether. We should just make continuous water supply. And I, I get into this conversation almost every time I present my research. They're just like, get rid of intermittent water supply. We need continuous water supply. Intermittent is just bad. That's like asking poor people to suddenly become rich. Like, mm. they would have continuous water supply if they had a choice. Right. Um, <laughs> You're like, that's not an actual solution. Yeah. Like, we're, okay, give us the water. Yeah. And <laughs> like, there's cities with millions of people, and they have gotten grants from the World Bank to try to make their system continuous for this reason of improving public health and just uh, mitigating some of the other coping costs because of this. And it, a lot of them have not been successful. It's really, really hard mm. um, with growing populations. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for a lot of low-income countries to maintain their systems. Mm -hmm. Some systems might not even have electricity to run their plant. Yeah, Comp uh, People with high enough formal education to run their plant properly and to run it under the conditions that we do in the U.S. that's expected of them. And so what I'm excited to find in my research that intermittent water supply is not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. I'm finding out what is actually bad in these systems, and I'm finding that, at least in the, my system that I've modeled in the lab, that during that initial flushing period that actually doesn't last too long, that's where the bad water, is. like low water quality is. Mm. That's where the bad water is. It's not bad the whole time it's running. Mm, it's okay. actually better. So it's actually better. After it does that flushing, it flushes out the bad stuff. Right. Uh. Marcia says right. <laughs> um, it's a flush. <laughs> now, we do flushes in the U.S. when we want to clean our systems. Yeah. We actually do that as a good thing. And these systems are getting regular flush. So actually, they don't have to have bad water. We just need to know how to manage them. Mm -hmm. So people... Maybe in the future, I hope this is a stretch, but maybe we want intermittent water supply. Mm. Oh. Maybe it'll save us resources, but we do have a few things that we need to address. Mm -hmm. And as engineers, we need to do that. Like, mm. it's not really that hard. So we need to manage the flushing. And like Marsha described, we have these we have these tanks. A lot of households store their water because they want to just store it up when they got the supply. Right. And so we have an issue with the tanks because. There's there's a reason why you don't store your water days in a time at a tank at your house, because it deteriorates the water quality, you get stagnation, you lose chlorine residual, the residence time goes up, and you don't want a long water age because it loses it's uh, you get bacterial regrowth, mm -hmm. bacteria regrows in your um, supply, and then you get uh, chlorine is not static, it degrades over time with exposure to air, with exposure to light, with exposure to heat just its general lifetime. So you don't want water sitting in these tanks. So we, there's some things that we need to start addressing, but do those sound like huge problems to you? We're no, not, no. it's not, it's, I mean, they're very, the good thing about IWS research is it will affect everyone who has these systems. And it's over 1 billion people around the world are affected mm. by IWS. Everyone in Trinidad and Tobago, everyone in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm. Um, Can the tanks have some sort of filtration system? Yeah, maybe I should get you on my tank. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that's a good idea. But we have not really right. put a concentrated effort. We're like trying okay. to get people to the moon, but we don't have good we don't have good water tanks. I'm mm -hmm. not saying don't go to the moon. Right. I'm saying <laughs> that 
we have tools and technologists yeah. to start looking at these problems right. seriously. So you're saying people have just, the solution they've yeah. come up with is just convert to our, the way we've already yeah. figured out yeah, instead yeah. of adapting to the way that actually works for most people. Exactly, yeah. It's really interesting. There has been some tank designs either adding component like mechanical components or even just the the shape of the tank, but again, it's one of those things that we have a problem in science where we do a lot of research, but we don't actually make it so that it can come out to everyone mm -hmm. and be a solution for everyone. We have all uh Marsha will explain to you in water treatment, we have all these kind of filters for like low-income communities that no one uses because they're complicated, they're hard uh. to manufacture, they're hard to clean, they're not attractive, like things like that. We need we need better tank designs that will actually be taken up and used by people. I remember um, growing up, we would only flush our tank uh, when there was an issue with it, which would yeah. be every couple of years. And the stuff you would see at the bottom of the water tank was a lot of crud. So I think flushing is... Mm -hmm. We, we should know how often to flush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should have a tank that's like easy. Easy to, to flush. flush. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing that that's comes to mind for me. Like, I'm like, if you have intermittent water supply, mm -hmm. say there's two days a week that you can you can mm -hmm. take water out of your pipes. The last thing you want to do is like throw away the first water yes. coming out, right? Yes. But that's what you should actually be doing. Mm -hmm. So then. You know, yeah, you're faced with this problem of like, I want to get all the water I can while I can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, then how you need to know, yeah, like, how much do you flush before you yes. are like, yeah, this is now the safe water. This is funny to me because I had this exact problem in my apartment <laughs> yes. when I moved in a couple months ago. I like drew my first bath yeah. and the water came out brown and I took pictures and I was like, I'm going to send these to Mimi. Yes. <laughs> but I ran like four more tubs and then yeah. the water was clear. I know I was scared Kim's face. Right I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> She's what, a what, what country were you in? Oh my God. I was in um, Amherst, Massachusetts. Oh my Amherst, God. Massachusetts. Oh God. <laughs> But I mean, so that, I mean, that yeah. maybe, like, I don't know, I think somebody hadn't been living there for a month or something, you know, so that's, yeah. like, I had to flush. Like, mm -hmm. it had been sitting there. Um. <laughs> On my list of research ideas is someday when I get time, money, you know, um, I'd love to, I'd love to do an experiment where I could say, okay, if I just flush for maybe one minute, because people have come up, people from these communities with intermittent water supply are like, no one's ever going to flush. And I'm like, yeah. I know. I know they're not gonna flush, but like, if we can say just one minute, if we could just say, I wouldn't have the household do it because I don't think, I don't. I think if we don't do it in the U.S., it's not fair to ask people in um, different communities to do it. So I don't think I would ever f flush my water regularly. Maybe I would, but I know everyone wouldn't. But like, maybe the utility can help flush because they already have like. What are you going to say, think, Masha? I think, well, the way this, the thing that happens is the utility pipes are yeah. connected to the, the drums, the water drums. Mm -hmm. And when it when they turn it on, it goes directly to the drums. Yeah. It doesn't come to our That's house, into, into the house first. The drums automatically start filling up. Mm -hmm. And then we know it's full when, you know, there's overflow. The drum at the house. At the house. So oh, you turn okay. that valve off and then if, you know, if. If it, if it filled up really fast, we'd, we'd be getting water in the in the pipes inside directly from the company. Drums are already filled. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking it'll be really difficult to flush unless the tanks are designed to do so yeah. without people thinking about it. Right, so you have to have some kind of automation because you can't yeah. expect people to be like, oh, the water came on, let me drop yeah. everything and go. Yeah. 
change the bucket at the oh, exact mm -hmm. right time or something Connected like that. Connected to sprinklers. Yeah, yeah. The first two minutes of water sprink uh, uh, yeah. water the garden or whatever. Yeah, that's a great like, idea. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm thinking like there's also different ways where it can get it could fill up a one container first, even mm -hmm. if it's a small container. Mm -hmm. It can fill up that first before going to a different system. Ah. Or like it can go into like maybe a pipe section which has a slow leak at the end. So all of the first water will be caught there before the rest of the water like goes. Anyway, I'm getting yeah, really into so like a very off thinking about some of this stuff. But also in some utilities, I don't know if it's everywhere, but people manually go shift the different uh, different branches of the system. Yeah, we do that. So they do that, I think, pretty much everywhere. If they could, like, shift to a, like, uh, like, before they shift it on to the community, they could um, let it flush out to, like, somewhere, a drainage. Just oh. some you're talking, ideas. You're talking about the utility company? Yeah, oh, utility okay, okay. company. Mm. So it wouldn't quite make it to the home. Yeah. That's true. Right, but so do a flush at the, the bigger scale yeah. instead of putting that on the individual to have that yeah. planned out. That makes and sense. now that I've been in a lab and I've looked at some of this, um, my next step will be to two things, actually. So I don't know if a lot of people know about this, but the University of Sheffield in Sheffield, UK has a full scale water distribution system. It's so sick. It's Did a you big guys know? <laughs> no, I didn't know. <laughs> that. I, like, I don't know. Did who you guys know about, about this? I'm sorry for interrupting. This <laughs> <laughs> is really cute. <laughs> so they have imagine a big coil of pipe. It's just this. They use a more flexible pipe, and it's coiled up, and it's coiled up like two stories, and it's a full scale, meaning it's like. It's like a mile and a half. Oh my gosh, oh, I wow. hope I'm quoting that correctly. Um, and it it's coiled up in this room. And so that's like a full-scale distribution system where I wouldn't have to do that recycle time that I kind of do. In uh. the lab, water can just flow right through it like it's a real system. Mm. And so, like, it's not exactly a real system, but it's a good generalization without the other factors of, like, groundwater or leakage and stuff like that. And what I can do is divide up that system into different, three different, like, subgroups one continuously uh, one intermittent and then I can do another intermittent one on a different schedule let's say or a different oh, flow rate yeah. or anything a different chlorine level maybe I'll flush one maybe I won't yeah and so I can run those and do a full scale mm. and I'm trying to do that maybe I'll go in January um, and try to do some of that and then the next step would be okay and then we'll say with that full scale pipe loop does that is that correctly modeling what I see in the lab? Is that mm. is that correct, or do I see more pronounced differences? Do I see less pronounced? Are my assumptions real, false, right. things like that? Um, and then the next thing would be to go out into the field and start taking some samples. Um, so when I look at water, I look a lot. I look at a lot of different things. I look at dissolved oxygen, pH, temperature, chlorine free and total chlorine concentrations. Can I stop you? Yes. And ask like, so what does dissolved oxygen tell you about water? Like do you want that's great. High, like high oxygen water? Do you want low oxygen water? Yeah, that's a great question. So like when bacteria is in, when bacteria is in the water, um, it can uh, reduce the wa water dissolved oxygen by um, just respirating, but also when it decomposes, it, it takes up oxygen to decompose. So you know, like in a lot of lakes, when they're not healthy, they lose a lot of oxygen because mm -hmm. of either overpopulation or de decomposing matter. So 
Dio is not a super important thing in terms of um, health, but it has a lot to say about the water quality and what's going on in the water more than anything. So it's telling you that there's bacteria hanging out in your water and and breathing and doing its thing. We're looking at TOC, which is total organic carbon, another important water quality parameter in terms of treatment. We just want to know, like, what's going on? Is it different? Is it not? We're looking at total microbial growth, too, as well. Okay. Like, that's a big component. Oh, right. my gosh. I'm missing this whole <laughs> part. Um, that's okay. We just didn't get to it yet. Okay, now, great. Now we're talking about <laughs> Let's talk about the microbes in that I'm taking a look at. So I use a really cool method. We measure ATP. And so ATP is the... Um, if you learn from biology class, it's in every living organism, and it's the kind of energy molecule. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that means it's not only present in um, bacteria, but it's also present in funguses and different kinds of bacteria and um, any microorganism. Like, it's slipping my head all the categories right okay. now. But traditional methods only look at one type of bacteria because because of the limitations of growth media. Like plant, if you look at a, like if you grow back a lot, the traditional way of counting microbes is to take a sample and grow it on some kind of growth media. And not all bacteria for three things happen. Not all gra- bacteria like to grow outside of their natural environment. Not all bacteria like to grow on the same media, and not all bacteria is growable. Like, it's not viable. Uh. Um, so a lot of there's a lot of limitations, but people just keep using it because it's been the standard and we've been using it. But for, I'll, like, sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, so that's the way that they normally test water for safety? Is yeah, that, like, they put it, like, they basically put some in a Petri dish and yeah. see if something grows? Yes. Okay. So yeah. you're using a different way. Of, I'm using a different way. Okay. Um, to so get more of the back. You're capturing more of what's actually happening in the yeah, water. Yeah, okay. exactly, Laura. Um, so that, 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 uh, kind of older method is called heterotrophic plate count and it only grows heterotrophic bacteria it doesn't grow like any other kind um and it's been used in the water industry and there's a standard and there's a lot of action i'm not the only one who doesn't think too highly of it it's uh really debated um because heterotrophic bacteria is not necessarily bad it can just it just shows you what's going on in the water so what i do instead is i measure atp which measures everything in the water and it doesn't tell me what's there or how much. It just tells me a general number of how much ATP is in the water so I can know of general microbial activity. Mm. Um, and really, that's just what I'm looking for. I'm just looking at what it generally is in there. Um, and so I can p- compare it between the two systems. Um, ATP method is really cool. If you didn't know, what I what I do is I filter the water. <laughs> Did I'm you sorry. know? She's, just amped about it right <laughs> She's so excited. I love. I'm it. so excited. <laughs> I didn't even get to the. I love how, how you're keeping like if you didn't know. I'm like yeah, I didn't know. I, I, didn't know. Know. <laughs> I never even met a black person that like water like this. Like never. You usually don't even like water. Like. <laughs> okay, so you got your water sample and you filter it through a filter, and you 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 take so you got the filter. It's just a membrane filter. It's a fat, fat piece. And then you take another chemical, and this chemical breaks open cells. And so you now that you've filtered the water, all the, all the microorganisms are trapped on this filter. And so you take the filter, and then you filter again this, uh, this um, chemical that breaks open all the cells. So now you, the cells are broken open. The ATP comes out and is caught into a tube. 
And so, like, I have this tube with this liquid and all the ATP, bro- like, and all the cells broken open. So you released it. I released it, cells. yeah. Were, it was, like, in little yeah bubbles of cells yeah not bubbles really but okay and so now all the cells are broken open the atp is out and everything's out um but it's basically just cells and their pieces because i filtered everything else and then so you take a little a little sample of that kind of mixture of water of all the cell pieces and you put it in a tiny tube and then you put a little bit of an enzyme and this enzyme is the same enzyme that fireflies use to light up. Uh, so cool. It's so cool. And so, <laughs> like, did you, did you collect it from fireflies? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the rep on the flo- uh, phone calls it firefly juice. <laughs> <laughs> the, like, sales rep? Yeah, the sales rep. <laughs> There's somebody out there selling firefly juice? Yes. Do you have to be an engineer to buy it? Or can no. I just call up and you get some? You can call up. It's expensive. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on the juice. Okay. So, Okay, you get that juice. And so the thing about that firefly juice is how it actually works is when it's mixed with ATP, it lights up. Nice. And so this reaction happens pretty quick. You just put a tiny bit of enzyme and a tiny bit of, like, the, the cell particles that you collected. Throw it in, like, a light meter. It's, like, got a specially designed little light meter. Throw those both together in a light meter. Shut the top and press the button real quick. And it'll measure the light emitted from that reaction between the enzyme and the ATP. Wow. And it's actually a really, really good test. Mm. Um, it's repeatable, consistent results, not a lot of variation between the replicates, but it's a very, very expensive. It's like $10 a sample. Uh, um, wait, can we take Firefly juice? Can we? we can't you want to? You want to start our? I want to light up. I want to light up. <laughs> You're like I wanted to interact with my ATP. <laughs> it's not very bright. Can you, to be Can fair. it be like makeup? Like, can it be like, like oh to make you glow? Take it a what good do you call glow it? on the oh, cheeks. Contour stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Contour um, stuff. Highlight. <laughs> I don't think it, it's a good name for a highlighter, maybe. Like, <laughs> Fire yeah. but not actually. No, the, the, the little light that is emitted is very dim, and it's very uh, short-lived. Okay. Like, you have to have a special meter just to detect it. You can't mm. see it. It's uh, sad. Okay. Uh, no. I was picturing this beautiful light. Yeah, no. I was, like, picturing a flash of light in Mimi's lab. No. Uh, I wish. <laughs> no, don't drink that sample. <laughs> a very, very, d- like, uh, delicate photometer kind okay. of takes oh, yeah. it. Precise measurements. Wait, was, I want, you said you use this chemical that breaks down all the cell walls. Yeah. Is that dangerous? Nah. Ooh, good question. I don't <laughs> touch it. Picture, okay, yeah. It's a common fluid used in um, microbiology and I think other life sciences. It's a lasing okay. um, fluid. It just breaks open cells, cell walls. I don't know how it... It just sounds dangerous, it, doesn't it? I don't think it is. It <laughs> probably is dangerous if you're a single cell, but. <laughs> <laughs> you're on to me. Uh, so one last part is that, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but water is not sterile. Water isn't sterile. There's microbes in it. Um, a lot of people all are. Water. All water. Even unless it's, it's sterile water. What about Even bottled if it's filtered, water? Yeah. yeah, I was yeah. just going to ask her that way. Yeah. Oh, no. It's not uh, sterile. It's not what bad. What are we paying for? It's not bad. What Why are we are you paying, paying for? this bottle of water if it's not sterile? <laughs> it's not sterile. Okay. Um, and that's fine. Nothing sterile. Um, okay. It's really fine. Um, unless you buy water that says sterile on it. Or you boil it, I guess. Mm. It would be sterile. So it's not a bad thing. Like, water has microbes in it. It's not. It's, it's cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was freaking. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, mm, it's not cool. <laughs> um, even if it's filtered, it, it, how, it would have to be, like, a 
for, for me to filter the water, I have to like push it. I have to really push it. So like if you're getting like a regular kind of filter that you're not like, if it's like uh, reverse osmosis yeah, or something, I mean. oh, then you're fine. Okay. It's probably sterile. Okay. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> if it's not like like uh, very treated water, super filtered, it's probably not sterile and that's fine. Um, so what bacteria does, what it likes to do is grow these biofilms. And it grows them on surfaces, and it's like a community of bacteria that grows in a slime layer. Um, and so they're present everywhere. They're pr like in your bathtub, if you ever feel that sticky stuff on the edge. Yeah, cringing. Some people are cringing on your sink. Okay. Um, in tubing, you see it a lot. Um, on just running water in a stream or something like that. So that's on the inside of your pipes. And it's not necessarily bad. And in fact, some people are trying to see if we can engineer that biofilm on the inside of the pipes to actually filter your water oh. to help keep it clean. So it could be a good thing. It could be a good thing, yeah. But it's not right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it doesn't sound like a no, good thing. No, it's actually, you would be surprised how much. Because with that biofilm, it, 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 bio, uh, bacteria grows in that way because it helps select for and protect the bacteria. They all live together in this community. It's very strong, and it's get, it it's actually strengthened by the running water. Um, so that bacteria can harbor a lot of pathogens, stuff that can make people sick. Um, and when that, and so it's not necessarily bad, but a lot of time when that layer, the biofilm layer, is disrupted, it can come off the side of the wall or release organisms. Mm, and good. so, yeah, a lot, it's been shown recently that a lot of waterborne diseases, at least in the US, uh. ha or biofilm associated, are associated with these biofilms. Uh. Um, so, what I'm doing is I created a little, and it, this is not my original idea, this is like from another idea generated from a different place, but I have built these myself in the lab. Um, a biofilm sampler. It will sample the biofilms, and how I do that is I have a little, it looks like a little plug, and I drill a hole in the in the pipe, and I put this little plug in, and the plug is made from a cutout, a circular cutout of the pipe. It's maybe an, a half an inch across. It's kind of small, and I, t I uh, affix it to um, like a backing piece, like a square of plastic, a rounded square of plastic, and I have a a gasket to keep it from leaking and I can put it into the pipe and it'll fit really nicely because it's actually cut out from a piece of pipe so it fits in it's about a half inch across and then I can like clamp it down with like a like a some way to fix it we call it a hose clamp but I'm not sure if everyone knows what those are but it tightens around it and it keeps it stuck on the pipe and I have a bunch of those throughout the pipe loop I have about 15 in each one right now and so that not sits nice and smooth with the pipe and I can actually grow bio grow biofilms will grow on that and when I take when I unattach the biofilm sampler or we also call it biofilm coupon coupon because it's a piece of the pipe um, I can use that and I can scrape it for DNA analysis so we can see what's there I haven't done that yet um, but also another dimension of these coupons is it has a small little insert and it just like is like maybe small piece of plastic like one eighth across or so that slides in and out of the uh, disc part I don't know how easy this is to visualize for some people and that 
is a flat piece and that is like that because if you slide it out you can put it under a microscope because you can't really put a rounded surface under a microscope because it just it won't see it all in one field yeah is that confusing or does that make sense <laughs> okay so I yeah. mean, in essence, you you grow, yeah, in you essence, grow a biofilm yeah. on something that you can then take out of the yes. system and look at, so you yeah. understand what's happening on the walls of these pipes. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And so that's something you just started implementing, or have you looked at it much? Um, so I'm looking at them right now. My experiment is like ongoing, and mm -hmm. I haven't gotten a chance to. But we have been able to uh, look at them under the microscope. Um, we, I've pulled a few. Some are frozen, waiting around a uh, genetic analysis for when I get time. Um, and do then, you, do you use um, 23andMe or? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should. Uh, no. Ancestry.com. <laughs> no, I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great. <laughs> the biofilm section. Ancestry.com. <laughs> Sorry. Reveals the scandals. <laughs> I'm scared to drink tap water now. You got me oh, all. Oh, no. But I don't drink it anyway. But <laughs> is there, like, so I'm really, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am hyper-focused on yeah. bottled water. Mm -hmm. And the higher the alkaline, I'm, you know, I'm all over it. So none of that even makes, is it all, is it BS or is it real? Like, what is it? So the good news is bottled water, or drinking water is the safest water for you to drink out of the, your tap. Um, they did a recent study where generalized looking at all water sources, bottled water, truck water, tap water, like surface water, all this, you're always going to be the safest drinking piped water around the world because it's regulated where a lot of other sources are not regulated. Wow. Um, oh, wow. The times where we see accidents, those are just like the, not the rare accidents, but like are less significant than the general unsafety of some of the other sources. Um, so that's a good thing about drinking water. It's heavily regulated, um, especially in, if you're in the cities. New York City has great water. Some of the best water. Some of the best water in the world. New York City, can you believe that? Because it comes from a, the Adirondacks, yeah. which is a very protected area. They protect mm. their water really well. Mm -hmm. um, Boston has actually pretty decent water so you're pretty safe drinking water um from the wow. tap who knew yeah who knew sometimes it has a weird taste sometimes it has a weird odor but that's just byproduct it doesn't really affect your health mm. um if you don't like those you can fil filter it in a burda if you like mm -hmm. things like that mm, wow okay yeah it's been a long one. Yeah, blown completely. Are you gonna stop buying all those bottled water? I don't know. I'll water is not regulated. Okay, wow. If wow. you if you're so really concerned, tap. yeah, tap, but filter it through a Brita if you really. Well, we have reverse osmosis, so oh. we have a filter under our sink. Oh, then you should definitely. <laughs> you're like, yeah, I know what kind of filter I have. <laughs> I'm sorry, we didn't save like a, a section for the yeah, research right, right. you've been doing in your house with your, your fancy filters. <laughs> yeah, so just use your fa fancy filter okay, and get I'm a reusable. Well. Uh, yeah, get reusable. Okay. There was something you said. Um, oh, yeah. oh, that the flowing water helps the biofilm. Yeah. Can you explain it? Because it seems like yeah. that would, you know, it seems like flowing water would 
clear it out and not help it? I don't great. know. If that's that is a great question because it's very intu- in, uh, not intuitive at all. Okay. So what happens when biofilm kind of uh, grows in stagnation or not strong water? It doesn't grow very strongly. It's like fluffy. It's not resilient. And then you get some flushing action and the biofilm is gone. And But when it grows under like more stressful condition, uh, like shearing and flow, with uh, – not shearing and flow, but pressure and flow, you, it, it's more resilient because it has to hold on to each mm-hmm. other stronger. Oh. And Marsha's agreeing with me. It's got it's got to hold on to each other to be able to exist on the outside of the. So you actually get thicker biofilms where the conditions are, um, like fast flowing water, with um, some pressure. Interesting. And so, but if you start getting too fast water, you get turbulence and shearing and uh, different stresses. But if you get like continuous water where it's not breaking, actually trying to chip off hmm. the biofilm, it's actually more resilient. So I did like a tiny experiment where I put some of these water coupons in two different beakers, and one just sat there, and one like was being stirred around pretty fast by a stir plate, and I was surprised. I even didn't really think about it, but I took each one under the microscope, and I'm like, why are the ones being stored so thick? Because the other the other ones just sitting there, even though they looked like they were fluffy and kind of, they just washed away when I rinsed them real quick with a little bit of water just to get off of any extra stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Huh. Interesting. Uh, what is the biofilm made of? Is it just all bacteria? It's just like a sheet of bacteria? Um, no, it's a, that's a great question. And so God, the bacteria. <laughs> You're like, I need to leave the room. <laughs> if, you need to, too, if you need to leave, I'm this too sensitive for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what happens is the bacteria grows, secretes like a, a substance called the extracellular polymetric substance or EPS and so it lives in this structure of proteins and different things and it's and that and all different kind of bacteria can grow in this biofilm and so they kind of live in that that's the slimy layer Mm. Um, okay thank you for clarifying yeah (laughs) so the EPS is a big part of the the bacterial community so you see a lot of that Mm. okay Oh my God. Wow. It helps protect them and different things. Gotcha. It's like their their version of like a condo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> they built their own little community and now they're moving in. Okay. Well, all right. <laughs> okay, so I think we're ready for the final part of our show, which is a little game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. And today our guests have provided us with some acronyms, and we're going to give them tip, Kim, to guess what they mean. Um I don't have a PhD, but uh, you're <laughs> still really smart. <laughs> you're in good so your first acronym is G R U. Oh my God. Um, mm, gangster rap. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, all right, growing. No, geologists. Um, yeah, geologists. Is that am I close? 
Mm. Yeah, there's has... two more letters. <laughs> <laughs> Geologists are uh, really upset. I don't know. <laughs> true. <laughs> Actually, we're very happy people in general, but that was a good try. <laughs> okay, so what's it, what's it actually mean, Marsha? It's, it's, uh, it's basically groundwater recharge units. Oh. And, um, you know, for subcatchments so or for the entire island, you, you could calculate. Well, these units are like small uh, sub-basins. And we take precipitation, subtract um, run runoff, and evapotranspiration. And what is left behind is storage, which is recharge. Mm. So yeah, it's called GRU. All right. So that's how you figure out the total. That's like your net pay, right? Yeah. It's like how much, <laughs> it's how like much is left over after, yeah, after everybody <laughs> else gets their piece. Yes. <laughs> that's what goes into your, um, your savings. Okay. Okay, so now we have some uh, acronyms from Mimi. We've got IWS. Oh, I know what that is. Uh, you better. <laughs> Um, there's some irritable woman syndrome. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's um, intermittent water systems. Yes, I got yes. that one. Nice. <laughs> irritable with men syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> this is nice. <laughs> uh, okay. Awesome. I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> um, we have another one. T-O-C. Mm. THC or cocaine? T-O-C. Okay. Usually that's tea or coffee, right? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> for a tournament of champions. Maybe. Um, let me think. Tournament of champions, yeah. Um, that's a good that's one. Um, Tea or coffee? I need to use some of these jokes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um, so give me a hint. Okay, uh, the tea is total. Total. Okay. <laughs> I'm so good at hints. <laughs> one of the words. <laughs> I like your hints. Okay. Oh gosh. Um, the C is an element. Oh, uh, total oxygen concentration. Ooh, very close. That's a good guess, actually. I don't know. What is it? Oh, my God. That might be an acronym, but that's not the one. Total organic carbon. Oh, organic carbon. Okay, uh, got it. So can you remind us what, yeah. what does that mean? Um, so in water treatment, um, in drinking water treatment a lot, we take a look at the total organic carbon because it has an effect on the treatment processes, on the filters, on the chlorine, how much um, turbidity there is in the water, how, like, turbid, the color. So it has a lot of effect mm -hmm. on the water quality. What, where does that carbon come from? Uh, organic stuff, uh, <laughs> leaves, uh, like leaf and dirt. Oh, okay, okay, we so did this, it. This was awesome. Nice. Do we have any You're takeaways? Awesome. Oh, you are too. Yes, <laughs> it was so, so fun. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like yeah. you to come look at my water at my house. <laughs> You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso. My guests today were Mimi Elkatan from Civil and Environmental Engineering and Marsha Allen from the Geosciences. My co-host was comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can find Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook and Twitter. You can listen on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And if you can't find it, let me know and I'll add it. 
Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst for WMUA news coming right up.